Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And uh, this is our second installment of our little uh, shorties that we do, where we talk about what has uh, been published on the show this week. Yeah. And kind of a little bit more of a relaxed behind-the-scenes discussion of the topic. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Frances Benjamin Johnston, known more colloquially as Fanny, and her astonishing photography career. It is astonishing. Uh, one of the things that that came up in the episode that I thought was maybe worth exploration, but we are working purely off speculation, is the fact that she was clearly, in terms of behavior, very feminist and very much about moving women forward in terms of having careers. And she wrote really detailed, like a how-to, essentially, of how to start a photography career. Uh But she did not identify as a suffragist or as any part of the women's rights movement as it was happening in the late Victorian and early Edwardian eras. Did you have any uh, speculation into why that might be? This is all guesswork. And I, my only thought is that because she was working in Washington, D.C., and was working with a lot of prominent politicians and was from a family that was very connected to a lot of politicians. Her father, for example, we talked about in the episode, worked for the Treasury Department. My only thought is that she was willing to do, like, the work on the ground, but she didn't want to make a big statement or stance and potentially ruffle feathers or mess up any of those connections which were so vital to her career and really her family's well-being. That's my only guess. Yeah. But I love her so much because... Her self-portraits are some of my favorite photographs I have ever seen in my life. They are so fun because it really is like, on the one hand, there's such a wide spectrum of them, which we described some of them on the show, that it almost feels like a kid playing dress-up. Like, it is so many different images of herself as almost entirely different people. But it also is one of those things that reminds you that people are myriad and none of us is any one given identity, right? Right, right. So, Holly, you did the research and the writing for this episode. And the way our process normally works is that uh, Holly sends me the script and I get the artwork to go with it on our website. That's just sort of one of our division of labor things on the show. And so I had only read, like, the introduction And I started a quick search for a photograph to go with it because a lot of times it's kind of a big nebulous thing of, is there going to be a picture for this or not? And the answer is there are thousands of pictures. They're all over. There's a lot of them that are digitized and available on the web. But then I replied back to you having just read that introduction with a link saying, is this the self-portrait you're talking about (laughs) in this intro? And you were like, yes. And then, of course, once I had read through the whole thing, you described the actual photo, and I was like, well, if I had just hung on for a minute, I would have known the answer to this question. No worries at all. Uh, Yeah, I really, really love the fact that Fanny is one of those rare and unique situations where a lot of her most famous work is at this point more than 120 years old. Oh, yeah. But it is still readily available to see online. Anyone can see her work if they have an internet connection. The Library of Congress has the vast majority of her work. There are other libraries and museums that also have some of her work. But, like, in terms of the scope of her work and the amount of it that is digitized, Mm -hmm. it is better represented online and in terms of accessibility than any other photographer from her era I can think of. Yeah. 
and certainly even better than many artists in terms of of things being able to be seen. Uh, So if you are curious, especially because she did make that really interesting transition from portraits to architecture and gardens, which Mm -hmm. is, to me, a fascinating gear shift to make kind of midway through a very lucrative career, it's interesting to look at how her composition shifts. Uh, There is one particular photograph that she took in the state dining room in the White House that is so beautiful to me in terms of light and composition that it reminds me of some of like my favorite Dutch Golden Age painters in terms of how they how they use light to focus the eye. It's really really pretty. Um, and a lot of her pictures we talk about it in the episode. She was trained as an artist, so her visual eye is really from that that ideology and with that education behind it. So she does tend to create images that look similar in terms of how light is used and how they're framed to the way a painter might, and I love that about them. So one of the things that we talk about in the episode um, was the the pictures that she took of the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute and sort of the evolution of how those uh, have been curated and explored in terms of their content because they were made sort of as a PR move in a way that was inherently racist because it was about looking at this through a very white lens when they were photos of Uh, Black and Native American students. And it really reminded me of a few years ago when you and I were in Chicago, I walked over to the Field Museum and they had this exhibit going on that was about the work of Malvina Hoffman, who had been commissioned to travel the world and make these sculptures of the people she found living in all these places. And the sculptures are beautiful. She took enormous care to try to capture the humanity and the worth of everybody that she was sculpting. But the reason she had been commissioned to do it was for the inherently racist idea of creating a racial hierarchy at which white people were at the top and then curating them that way in the museum. And so this uh, exhibition that I saw in more recent years was sort of looking back, like how was the field perpetuating racism with these sculptures Like, how do we look at the sculptures? How do we look at what the field was doing with these sculptures? And it really reminded me of the process that those photos sort of went through as people have re-examined how to look at them and how to think about them in their context. Yeah, that's a, uh, I mentioned in the episode an article that really breaks down like the three primary exhibitions of those and how those ideas shifted. I cannot recommend highly enough that people go check that out. I will make sure in the source list that that is the top one so it's easy to find. Um, so hopefully people will go and explore and also just take a peek at her her photos, which are very fascinating and Like I said, I mean, I'm clearly a very visual thinker. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone who's ever listened to the show for more than 12 minutes. Um, So for me, like, that's such an incredible connection to be able to have to history and how it has all played out and to look at some of these problematic ideologies that were being executed through art. It's something that's hard to talk about in some ways because you want to consider them as art and from the point of view of an artist who is trying to make something beautiful, but they have meaning and they have import and they have the potential to be very damaging. So it's it's worthwhile to kind of walk into that, that discussion with an open mind and really look at those images and think about uh, that write-up and how it breaks them down. Uh, so our second episode this week was about uh, the San Francisco earthquake and fire of 1906. Yep which uh, has kind of been lurking on my list for a while, but then because it kept coming up, as I mentioned in that episode, 
On a recent trip to San Francisco, it felt like the universe was telling me to just stop dithering about and just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's, I know for me, it's always tricky to decide whether to revisit something that previous hosts did in a shorter treatment. Because, like, the list of things to talk about is so incredibly long uh, that sometimes it's like, should we? Should we not? Is there enough information beyond what they already said? Like, there's a whole thought process involved. Oh, for sure. And I I went back and re-listened to that one, and I found myself several times, this is kind of my litmus test, I found myself several times going, yeah, yeah, but you left out the part where... <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Uh, which is probably if there are enough of those. Like, they mentioned that they tried to use fire breaks and that it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. They didn't really discuss why that was a problem or, like you know, the fact that there was a pivotal figure in the fire department that that was out of commission and did not live much longer. So those, to me, are kind of like the fascinating parts of it. Like, when you understand why something went so poorly, it's, a, a, a to me, a little bit of a richer experience. So that's why I kind of wanted to delve into this, because it's all of that. And as well as the um, the third segment of of that episode, where we talk about Chinatown's population and how poorly they were treated, but ultimately, with astonishing just tenaciousness, they were able to reclaim their space in the city and make it very clear that they lived there and it was their home and they belonged as much as anyone, which was, uh, it's a weird story because in some ways it feels very uplifting, but like they, it's not as though they were suddenly not treated in ways that are racist and gross. Right. Uh, so it's a, a mixed bag, but also just an important thing to think about and talk about, because unfortunately most history is like that. Like, it's not, I always say history isn't clean, which is, oh, (laughs) there's no, even the good stories usually have something where you're like, I wish that were not the way it is. Yeah. Well, and and frequently when we have talked about some kind of disaster that, that displaced a minority group, that has not been how it worked out. It has been that, and then everyone was relocated to a different place, and that lucrative land was taken up by white people. Like, that's more often how the story has gone on the show. Yeah, this one definitely is an outlier, which is part of what makes it so fascinating to me. And again, like, I I was ebullient about my love of Chinatown during the episode, but I will say it again. I love Chinatown. It's one of my favorite parts of San Francisco, although I love the whole city. Um, I also love Japantown a whole bunch. I love, yeah. I'll basically wander anywhere in that city, and I'm usually pretty happy. Well, and I'll say for yet another time, because I also said it in the show, that that, that episode from 99% Invisible about uh, the decisions that they made to try to preserve their neighborhood uh, and the, like, the effects that those decisions had both on Chinatown and San Francisco and other places uh, super interesting to me. Yeah, there's uh, also a thing I wanted to mention. It's in the show notes for the episode, but uh, several years ago, there was an artist who did a series of photographs that are juxtapositional photographs where one half approximately of the image is from this period of devastation when buildings were collapsing or they were on fire and they kind of blend into scenes that are modern. So you will see someone happily walking down the street with their dog or whatever, and you see that that's the exact place where just a, a complete devastation of the area had happened at one point. There's one of those pictures that's very hard for me to to look at because I'm a wuss, and it's uh, there are several 
horses that were hit by falling debris and died. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit difficult. So if that's a problem for any of our listeners, maybe don't look at those pictures, but they are really beautifully done. Uh, and it, it's it's just one of those sobering things where I think it's easy for us to disconnect from the history of our spaces and not think about what has gone before in the places where we walk and buy groceries and do everyday, seemingly mundane things. But those are places where really important stories have played out, whether there is evidence of them there before us or not. Uh, so to me, that's kind of what I what I really love about those pictures. And I encourage anybody to go take a peek at them. Cool. So... That probably wraps it up for this week. I would say so, yes. Uh, If people want to write to us, they can do that at historypodcast at houseofworks.com. You can subscribe on uh, the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts, anywhere else you get your podcasts. And uh, you can always visit us online at mistinhistory.com. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 